Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California, this is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael, and today we're going to be talking all things tarot, me and Michael, something we know a little bit about, I think, and we're going to take the conversation wherever it needs to go. But before we get started, Michael does have a few announcements. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to our show again. Um, we've got all kinds of great, coming, great stuff coming up. And next week in particular, we have one of our favorite guests, Dan Moore, who's a Kabbalistic and Hermetic philosopher. And you know, many of you have joined in for some of his past episodes. He's always a lot of fun to talk to. So looking forward to that. Um, and then get all the information on our website, sixcentsociety.com, S-I-X-T-H, all spelled out. And while you're there, if you can afford to, buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi. Helps us to cover our production cost. But most important thing you can do is click like and subscribe and all that good stuff and on Facebook. Or even if you're listening as a podcast, when you get home, pop over to Facebook and give us a quick, or not Facebook, but YouTube, and give us a quick, uh, quick like and subscribe, and it really helps a lot. Like us on Facebook, too. Uh, <laughs> and uh, all kinds of cool stuff going on. So as I said, we, we're planning big things for this year. And then another thing that we're planning is in late March is I will be starting another series of tarot classes since this is a tarot show today. So if you uh, have a, a desire to learn a little bit more, if you're a beginner or even if you're somebody with a lot of experience that just wants a few new insights, it's a great thing to do. So definitely um, just get a hold of us and we can give you all the info on that. So with that, I'm going to kick it back to you, Krista. So take it away, Krista. Great. Thank you, Michael. And it's our first live stream for a while. So I did want to acknowledge Inner Snorlax, who just said, love y'all show so much. And thank you for listening in because we've been absent on the live stream for a couple of months for a variety of reasons. Some of it technical, some of it because the guests could not come on the Tuesday. So thank you for uh, tuning in. We appreciate it. And also a couple other uh, little announcements. Um, one is that I have a special right now. It's called the January horoscope tarot spread which i use only in january to look at the year for people so if you're interested in that i offer it only in january and just go to our website mysticraven.net you can book a reading there either in person or remotely and i know michael just talked about the classes so let's get on with the show um i i did want to talk a little bit about not so much the history of the tarot which which is really fascinating. I've talked about it a little before, and I'm not a historian, but throughout the years, I have explored the history. And one of the things that's really lovely is there's much more available now in terms of people that take the time to research and publish books and, of course, online. And so it's a little bit easier to actually find more accurate scholarship on tarot's history. Um, so when I first started, I didn't know I didn't know anything about the history of the tarot. And uh, I think the tarot itself as a deck draws you in uh, into its uh, knowledge. You know, over the years, I got kind of curious about it. And I started looking at some of the different characters from Waite and Pamela Coleman Smith to uh, the beginnings of um, the first decks that were printed in the the. I guess it was the 15th century now, 
Uh, it has a over 600 years lineage, and that's what I would call it. It's a lineage, and I think it's because of the influence I've had in Buddhism. Now, they have a very kind of strict oral lineage where they pass on the teachings in a very specific way, and uh, the tarot doesn't have that kind of pure lineage, but it does have this lineage that's that really has grown and changed over time, and I've thought about it a lot, and um, there is this desire sometimes to want to sort of put it into different periods like this is the historic tarot this is the occult tarot period and then I, I started to realize that it's basically not really accurate either that that tarot itself is this imagistic force that appears to have its own matter evol evolving through humanity and so it's a reflection often of what's happening in humanity um, and then uh, another thing that's interesting about the tarot, which some tarot historians are, are starting to recognize, is, of course, really how it changes because of the invention of the printing press and the ability to print. And then the other thing that I was thinking about recently has to do with um, the ability to people literacy. So, for instance, the first books that were printed, not a lot of people could actually read the Bible. And I was reading this really cool article um, just this morning about, you know, I wanted to look and see, well, what, you know, what did the printing press really do besides obviously open up the, the world to printing? And there was something really interesting. It was, uh, the article is called Seven Ways the Printing Press Changed the World by David Roos. And the, the literacy rates were still very low in the 1490s, so locals would gather at the pub to hear a paid reader recite the latest news, which was everything from body scandals to war reports. So I thought that was kind of interesting, and because they did start to print pamphlets and things like that as well. Uh, I think there's a lot more research that could be done where the tarot really melds the history of printing and publishing and literacy into the actual lineage because I think it makes a huge difference in the availability and the and the way the tarot is used. Yeah, I think another thing that's really cool about the tarot again is that because it is an image-based method of communication as opposed to a written language kind of, you know, book kind of way of communicating, is that it allows for such incredible flexibility in, in the way that you can express it. So even though you have one tarot image, you know, there, there may be a, a hundreds of different ways to talk about or express different facets of that particular image. And that's true with symbolism as a whole. I, I think one of the nice things with symbolic languages is their ability to flow and adapt and evolve and, and to have so many different facets associated with each individual word, if you will, if we're going to refer to the card as a word, as opposed to a language where it is really very narrow in terms of what it can convey and, and to me that's one of the beauties of the tarot and then the other thing too is that it's such an amazing tool for just encapsulating the human experience um, the highs the lows the conflicts the inner conflicts the outer conflicts the joys and successes and fulfillment and and all that stuff and the contentment you know a big big word um, so all of those things I, I think it can can convey which is to me just a remarkable remarkable thing that any tool can do yeah i think that i think that's a really all of those are really excellent points and I, and one of the things that um i don't like about some modern decks is when they try to take out the more challenging looking cards because if the tarot is a reflection of life which i think it is then why would you not want everything in life and not make it look so you know just fluffy and pretty and not want to deal with just not necessarily negative forces but more challenging forces and i like the the cards that the decks that have that 
dualism and that have that dynamic energy. And you, you begin also to look at these forces differently, as we've talked about before in our Kabbalistic tarot episodes, how you start to see the nuances of these cards and not just this is a good card and this is a bad card. And that's from working with the images over a very long period of time. Yeah, a quick shout out and hi to Metanoia, who's Carrie Jane, who was our numerologist on our previous show. So if you guys want to go check that out, um, she was pretty awesome. All our guests were awesome, making a few forecasts for the new year. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the great things about a tarot deck is that a good tarot deck to me has to be able to have range. Um, and if it's too light and fluffy or if it's all too dark, and to me, that's not the human experience. The human experience is highs and lows and joys and melancholies and excitement and fear and all that stuff. So to me, a good tarot deck has to be able to encapsulate all those different feelings for me. So, I mean, Crowley's deck is amazing at that. And that there are a lot of decks out there that are absolutely amazing when it comes to that. But to me, again, what separates the really great tarot decks from, from maybe the, the not-so-great ones is the ability to convey that entire emotional range that we experience in life. I, I hardly agree, and it brings me into something I wanted to talk about. I've been thinking about recently. Uh, I get somewhat offended sometimes by decks that are published because they don't remotely remotely look like a tarot deck. We're not talking about, you know, an innovation of a symbol. We're talking about something that doesn't even connect to the tarot, including adding cards. And And so I wondered, I said, well, what, what to me constitutes a tarot deck at this point? And I think it's a combination of art and theory. So the art being somewhat connected to the symbolism, the rich symbolism of the major arcana, especially because you actually don't have to have imagery on the minor cards. I, there are plenty of beautiful decks that don't. So that's just a choice that you have. And then the theory being that at this point, I think the tarot, no matter what you say, how it originated, it deserves to be seen as something that has metaphysical meaning. And it, of course, it varies vastly what this theory is, where you could take, for instance, the Marseille deck, which is before um, Alistair Crowley and Waite and had nothing to do with with Hebrew and people that use those, the, the, any kind of Marseille deck, they look at the symbolism, the colors, and the numerology on the card in order to divine. And I think that's a perfectly fine system. I, I read a book about it. It was really interesting, this one way of, it's, it's a little more meticulous. You have to think about the cards and even how the faces look at each other. So you're looking at this imagery, right? And then there's other schools. There's the French school. There's the English school. Uh, there's certainly modern schools. Uh, I think there's different theories that go with a good tarot deck. And then if you don't have uh, both of those, you start to get into what I call tarot-inspired oracle decks. So it doesn't matter to me that they're 78 cards and that they even sort of connect to the tarot. And then, of course, there are cards that look, like I said, they don't even belong to the tarot. And what I, I think the reason for this this kind of um, millions of decks literally is because it's a reflection of our culture. We're, we're so fascinated with imagery and we're overstimulated um, that we don't often take the time to look at uh, something like the tarot and say, well, let me think about this imagery before I decide to create a new deck and, and try and think what could I add to it or what could I, what could I innovate. And that takes, takes more patience than I think this particular period of history has. 
Yeah, and Krista makes a good point, and we've talked about this uh, numerous times. We're actually in the process right now of hopefully finishing our, our first book on the tarot based on our, our 25 years of working with it, 25 years each. Um, and, and people often ask me, though, you know, why don't you draw your own tarot deck or create it? And I thought, well, it's because there's plenty of good tarot decks in the world. I don't know if we need another tarot deck. What we need is more discussion and, and analysis and understanding of the tarot. And so to me, and, and that's, and again, I'm going to come across as a tarot snob, which I readily admit that I am, so it's okay. Um, but to me, you know, I pick up books on the tarot, and there's just not a lot of intelligent discussion. You know, it, it's a restating the, of what the last book said, and there's not really anyone that says, well, maybe I don't agree with that. Maybe there's a healthier way to look at this or a different way to look at this and and so you don't really it's almost like inbred all of the the ideas in tarot and you really don't get the debate and the discussion that i think would be helpful in kind of moving everything forward you know and it's just a, a restating and a restating and a restating of what everybody else has said and maybe trying to put it in your own words a little bit but and sometimes not even that sometimes i think it's almost just a photocopy but but to me again i i think that we need in the tarot world, a lot more discussion and debate about what the decks mean or what the images mean. And to me, that's going to really advance it in understanding. I totally agree. And it, it takes, first of all, it takes more time to do that. And one of the, the, the privileges that we have, Michael, and it truly has been a privilege, is we have sat with so many different kinds of people and looked at so many patterns that you you test things out more. You test out, does this really hold true? And because we are being paid, um, which is another whole debate, whether you get, should get paid as a terrorist, but being paid makes you kind of at least for me, be on your toes more. And also, if you want to make a living as a tarot card reader, you have to have repeat customers of some kind and referrals. And so our theory has held out because we've been able to maintain a practice of the tarot. And certainly, we don't think we have the only theory on the tarot. But we do know that we're unusual because as a couple, we have read for so many people for so many years. And I think experience if you're paying attention, because I don't think everybody pays attention, is how the tarot will teach you what is uh, meaningful for you and how to work with it. And that's at least how I have found um, more than, as Michael said, I, I know for a fact that the books regurgitate the same things because I have read a lot of them and I've been doing researches on specific cards for that reason. And I've sometimes read 20 different books uh, interpretations of one card and there's very little difference and we're talking from you know from the late 1800s to, to now so the, not a lot of written innovation I'm sure there are people that practice the tarot that uh, don't write things that have innovation and they're not discussing it enough yeah, and obviously experience is probably really your best teacher because, uh, you know, again, I tell people when we start our classes, you know, especially if they're they're new to the tarot, is that I can't really teach you everything I've learned in 25 years, you know, in a couple of weeks. But, but what I can do is hopefully give you a much better starting off point than I had when I started 25 years ago so we can give you a, a foothold and a, a little bit of an advantage starting out. So maybe it'll take you, you know, a year to learn what I learned in four. <laughs> and that's really the goal. But yeah, and th th there's just an endless amount of innovation that goes with tarot. And, and there really is technically no right and wrong way to do it um, in the sense. But but I do like structure. And I, I think that especially if you're using it for readings. And again, this is a great thing with tarot is that it can be, have multiple applications. And it can be a tool for self-study and reflection where you do no prediction or, with it whatsoever and just use it psychologically. Or it can predict. And, and, you know, again, predictions aren't necessarily, you know, 
100% will happen every time because I think when we make prediction, we're working with the laws of probability and, and trying to understand probability. But at the same time, there is this uncanny ability for it to sort of synthesize whatever's going on with a person in the moment and project what's likely to happen next. And we, we've seen that play out many times. Um, but there is that multifaceted aspect of tarot, which I think is terrific. But I like the structure and, and the way that ties with Kabbalah and Hermeticism. And, and I think that having that underlying philosophy, it changes a little how you see some of the cards. And I, and I think it gives you a more holistic way of understanding them. You don't really see them as good and bad. There is no such thing in the tarot as good and bad, just proper and misproper application of force. And, and But it's not really a good or bad force. Um, and so I think that the structure does help with, and even with readings, I think having a system and a structure of philosophy to understand the tarot with, I think just gives greater consistency to our readings as a whole. Yeah, I totally agree with that too, having the structure and it brings consistency. And uh, uh, Carrie Jane just made the uh, comment about keeping the oracle and tarot more separate. And I, I think that is important, mostly so you don't confuse yourself. And one of the things I recently thought about one of the differences between a tarot deck and an oracle deck which is a very straightforward thing is that a tarot deck technically can act as an oracle deck but an oracle deck is not a tarot deck it'll have like 40 cards it has not not a system like the tarot um, that's one way to see it and and they can both be very effective i want to put out that um, but i think the tarot just deserves to be seen as the tarot and that it has the more I've actually read from some of the books that were created around the decks, there's a lot of material in them that make you think about the tarot. Like even Waite's book, uh, The Pictorial Key, there's some really interesting tidbits in there about reading, about life. And I think, like Michael said earlier, we just haven't really digested just the amount of um, esoteric information that can be used in a practical way because it, it's it's the esoteric schools are there. But Michael and I have found we're, we're unique in that, yes, we're sort of tarot snobs when it comes to what is an actual tarot deck, but the way we're not a snob is that we think the tarot can answer many kinds of questions from the most mundane, such as, is my dog happy at home? to the most profound, does God love me? And we are unusual because I, sometimes you'll find um, there's a dichotomy. There, you'll, you'll have the tarot scholars, some of them, not all of them, that are kind of snobbish about using it to divine the, the future and ask if you should buy a home. And then you have the other ones that know nothing about the esoteric side. And Michael and I feel that it's, it's fine. All of it's fine. Because again, it's a reflection of life. You know, if I if I'm gonna about to lose my home, how can I do any kind of spiritual practice? You know, so we think the tarot helps in many many ways, and we we see it in that way. And that way, we're not really a snob about how much the tarot can tell us. Yeah, I, I was reflecting when you were saying that that every once in a while you'll have somebody get into this this whole left brain right brain thing where where one is better than the other and and sort of favoring one over the other and to me it's always well yeah but you're still only using half your brain why don't we just use the whole brain <laughs> you know all of it and and certainly I think with tarot you sort of do that there there is a 
an intuitive aspect to it, certainly, and even just in creating the reading, you know, what draws your hand to choose that one card over any of the other 78 that you could have chosen in that moment. And to me, that's where a lot of the magic sort of happens. There's also the intuition. Sometimes I, I just will intuitively feel I want to, to favor a certain definition of a card over a different definition that I could have chosen. So, so intuitively, you're looking at the pattern, and there's an intuitive aspect to that. But there's also an analytical aspect to it. And, and definitely, I mean, if I'm doing a reading, and I often say this to my students, I wish you could be in my head for a minute while I'm doing a reading. And because there's so much calculation going on, you know, you're you're comparing this card against that card in the pattern, you're sort of seeing how they work together, you're analyzing it compared to something else. And so there's a tremendous analytical ability. And I really do think that the best tools for predicting have an analytical component, um, which Tarot does. And, and to me, again, it's... Uh, it's a different beast, and, and I don't think psychic stuff is necessarily good at prediction. Um, and the reason I say that, again, is that um, I use this example. You know, if, if you're going to describe the weather today, tell me what the weather is today, and you can describe it very well. It's a little cool here in Santa Monica and Venice. It's, a, it's blue skies, you know, I can describe. It's not very windy, so you can describe it. And if I said, what was the weather like a year ago on this day? You know, you can call the weather office. They carry all that same information. They'll tell you the relative humidity and the temperature and whether it was clear skies or cloudy and, and from hour to hour even if you want. Um, but if I said, what is the weather like a, you know, a year from this day, a year in the future, who do you call? Um, so if you're smart, you call the weather office again. You said, send me over all the data that you have for the, the 24th of January, going back as far as you have it. And then you analyze that data. You look at it and you look for trends. You see it's getting progressively a tiny little bit warmer every year. It tends to be sunny more than it tends to rain. It tends to be a certain temperature range. Um, and, and so you, you can use that to make a prediction that next year it's likely to fall within this parameter. It's likely to be sunny. It's likely to be within a certain temperature range. It's unlikely to rain. Um, and, you know, most of the time you'll be right, or a great percentage of the time you'll be right. Occasionally it will rain, you know, when it's usually sunny on this day. But, but again, you, you, it's important to understand those probabilities. And every decision we make in life is probability-based. And so it's about coming to some, some method of saying, okay, if I'm going to put the time and the effort and the energy into this project, what are the relative chances of it turning out in a successful way? You know, am I wasting my time? Is it something where I believe there's a, a rel relatively good chance that it could be successful? So it justifies the time and the effort that I'm going to put into it. Now, it's not a guarantee that it will be successful, but, but it's about understanding that probability so I can make an informed decision about whether this is a path that I want to go down or not. And the tarot, for whatever reason, is just brilliant at, at being able to do that. It totally is, and that, that is one area that's very commonly dismissed by um, tarot books that are more about the history. They'll say tarot cannot predict or tarot was not meant to predict, but ironically, even, even Alistair Crowley and Waite have predictive meanings, and, and there's a little bit of a, a paradox here because... Um, I'm not saying Aleister Crowley did not believe in using the tarot to divine things because he has a chapter on divination that's kind of funny in, I think it's a book on magic. Um, so he obviously did it a little bit. But there's this, you know, again, sort of like dismissing of it at the same time. And I think that that is more of a preference. Like, I mean, they didn't want to do it. So, And, and you know, I, I don't blame them because <laughs> there are some very tedious aspects of doing predictions as long as Michael and I have. Uh, but I think that we know for sure that the tarot can be used for that. And since it's been, uh, I think, attributed to the, the occult world, it has been used by, to do that, you, you know, no matter what anybody says. 
Yeah, I, I often love the way Crowley puts it in, in one of his books. I think it's in Magic and Theory and Practice. I don't think it's in the Book of Thoth, um, where he's, he likens it to um, playing a round of golf. Um, and that the slightest change of wind will affect the shot, and it won't always end up where you aim it, and, and there are a multitude of factors that could influence things. But still, a, a, an experienced, successful golfer will get it close to the hole more often than one who isn't. So, so it, it doesn't, in, if it's not 100% you know, perfect and predicting in that sense, um, because of all those little variables, that doesn't make it any less valid or any less useful. And that's it. And, and that it is a prediction. And I always like to tell people, you know, it is, and we like to try and see like how strong a prediction it could be based on our experience. That looks kind of weak, that looks strong. And it, it, it doesn't mean that if it's completely different, it doesn't mean the tarot is necessarily wrong because there are always outliers, even in statistics that you can't predict. Uh, which is, you know, you might say, well, Krista, you know, you're just trying to make sure that you, you don't look like a fool. And I say, well, look, I have looked like a fool <laughs> and I will continue to look like a fool doing readings. I've done some pretty silly things to tell you the truth. And that's just part of being a reader. You just kind of get over it and say, okay, you know, I was completely off on that. But at the same time, I, I do myself feel like it is a prediction. And like Michael says, that many parts of life we, we try to predict. It's, it's part of being a human. I think it's essential. I think that, you know, whether it's the stock market, whether it's the weather forecast, I turned on the weather today and it said, okay, there's a only a 3% chance of showers. I'm not going to bother dragging an umbrella, but if the weatherman tells me it's a 70% chance of rain, then I'm going to take it. Um, and again, you know, that's probability. He's saying there's a 70% chance I'm going to be right and it's going to rain. There's a 30% chance that I've misread this or something weird is going to happen. It isn't going to rain. Um, so even then, you know, I love that example of the weather forecast because it just gives it in straight up probability, you know, what are the odds of this happening? Um, and the other thing I think that happens with readings, and I've seen this a lot over the years too, is that if you're looking at a, a project or something, you know, going forward, um, is that sometimes a reading will give you good mile markers. So if this is going to, to happen, then at this point, something like this should occur. And at the next point, something like this should occur. So as you're kind of following the progress of things, sometimes as you hit those markers, it's a good indicator that things are actually going in the direction that, that the prediction suggested that they should. I love that you say the mile markers. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I definitely see that. And um, especially you see that in larger projects. Uh, sometimes you don't even see the outcome yet, which is always interesting to me is when it will show that this is the next step and it doesn't tell me what happens after that. And my only feeling about that is the tarot wants you to go through that experience first. And they don't want, the tarot doesn't want you to skip the stage. And I find it, it'll just give advice sometimes with, with things like that. And I know that some people are a little unhappy about that when I'll tell them like, well, this is as far as it goes so far. But I, you know, the main thing when you read any kind of um, do any kind of readings is just to be honest with what you see and what you don't see. Yeah. And uh, again, keep in mind too that, that a part of the reason I think sometimes you can see much further than other times is that sometimes there are key things which basically are, are so unestablished at any point there's no way to predict beyond it. 
um, because there's just too much chaos, there's too much uncertainty, there's too many things that are not established. And and so I've seen that. And, and uh, again, you know, a good example of that was way back when I first started this, you know, again, 25, 26 years ago, and there was a woman that came into the bookstore. It was the Little Mysteries We Were At in Halifax. A shout out to Vanessa and Tim, and Vanessa in particular for giving us a big leg up as readers. We will forever be grateful. Um, but she came in and she said, you know, my friends, I got a lot going on in my life. My friends said you were great and didn't really want to get a reading today, but they kind of insisted. And, and we went through spread after spread of cards and it was gibberish. I mean, I knew it wasn't making sense. It wasn't making sense to her. It didn't feel connected. And so I said, obviously, you don't have to pay for this. She said, no, I know you know what you're doing. She said, it's just a question. I knew I didn't want to get a reading today, she said, and I shouldn't have let my friends talk me into it. So I'll come back when I want one and then we'll try again. So a couple weeks later, she walked through the door, said, I'm ready for my reading now. We sat down and like, and it took one spread of cards to answer literally every question she had. It was just perfect clarity. So it's, again, a, a kind of thing where, where by forcing it a few weeks before, there were maybe certain key things to getting an answer that just hadn't fallen in place or formed enough to be able to predict. Whereas a couple weeks later, some of those things had started to form and then from there we could look at things with some clarity i've had that happen too the other time that that has happened is when somebody sat down they were literally crying as they picked the cards and it's fine for people to be emotional during the session but when they're picking the cards uh i feel it's good for them to be calm so that was another one. we actually just then relaxed and redid it it only happened a couple of times because usually people don't come in and start crying right away <laughs> so that's another example of of it being kind of chaotic and it didn't make any sense at all and and you really notice that difference with how the other ones do actually make sense that's what's so unusual is that there is a big difference in how the cards play together yeah uh, something i wanted to mention that you're you brought up um and this is some advice for readers in particular i guess not not just uh, tarot but in general um and maybe especially those who are considering getting into the field of becoming a reader because you're fascinated with it um is don't expect every reading to be light and fluffy um, and people are going to come to you with some very, very serious, you know, things going on in their life and serious questions. And, and, and it is, you know, there is some pressure there in a sense. And there definitely are times where Chris and I agonize over whether we got it right and gave the person the right. Because we're talking about sometimes literally life and death kind of things, you know, in many respects. And, and so to me, there, there's a tremendous responsibility with being a reader. I think you have to come from the right place. I think you have to be dedicated to helping the person, and it's not about the money and so forth. It isn't with us. And again, you know, um, but there are sleepless nights if you have a conscience and if you care about people where you're going, man, that was a that was a serious thing, and I really hope I gave the right advice. And, and it is something that will put a lot of pressure on you as an individual, I think, being a reader, if, if you care. If you don't care, it doesn't matter. You know, there are people, obviously, that are probably sociopaths that are doing horrible things with readings and, and just taking advantage of people for money and ripping them off. They, they probably sleep like a baby. But for those of you that have a soul and a conscience that really want to use it for the right reasons to help people, it, it definitely is heavy sometimes. It's not always light and fluffy. It totally is. And that made me think about, I am glad that I started doing professional readings about the age of 36. And even then, I was not totally prepared for people coming to me and asking me, you know, should I have an abortion? Uh, there, there, are, uh, there was one literally life and death, death question I got that I totally remember, and a person was waiting for an organ transplant. And all I could do, of course, was look at the probability of the person getting it. And I was sweating it. And I remember thinking, like, I just wanted to be right for their, their, you know, so they live. 
And it did happen to be right. And it was, I remember, I remember the reading because it was so stressful. And then I remember they would get it just at the nick of time. It was one of those things like I said, yes, they will. And it was getting close when that person came. It was actually not the person getting the transplant, someone that loved them. And I, I said, yes, they'll get it at the nick, in the nick of time. I really think it's likely. And, and oftentimes I'll say that the probability is very strong um, because that's all I can really do most of the time. And luckily it was. And it was kind of, I remember it was the person came back and told me it was a little unusual how they got it. Um, and all I could do is breathe a sigh of relief for them. You know, that, that idea that it's okay if I'm wrong, you know, as far as being wrong, but you, you don't want to be wrong for their sake. You want to, you know, believe that the cards really can say, hey, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And I can't say they're always right that way, but they can be enough times that I feel that they merit some study. And, and why does that work? You know, nobody really knows why it works. But as Michael said, it made me think, you know, some of these people that are doing professional readings, they're 20 and 21. I think as long as they do something they're comfortable with, but but I, I would say it, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty difficult to sit with someone going through, you know, marital problems if you've never had a long relationship. And, and so there's many, of course, topics you can talk about. But I would say if you're doing it really young, you might want to either consider having an older mentor or sticking to certain experience, uh, staying away from certain experiences until you have enough yourself or enough life experience to really talk about it. Yeah, and that, that brings up a good point too, is, is the interpretation of whatever you see in the reading, it can only reach the limits of your own understanding in many respects. So, so I don't really study anatomy. You know, medicine isn't my thing, I'm just not as into the healing part of it in that sense, and um, it just doesn't vibe with me so much. I mean, to Capricorn, I guess I like career and, and other things, but for me, again, so people often say, you know, can you use it to tell me about a, a disease or whatever? And technically, sure, you know, there, there are tarot cards that can analyze and, and diagnose and so forth. The problem is I may not understand what I'm looking at because I don't have the background, the knowledge to interpret it um, because I, I don't really do a lot in terms of anatomy. So so even if I'm looking at something, it's to me, it's going to be a mystery what that is. And, and I, I think that we're always going to be sort of, you know, working within the limitations of our own abilities to, to comprehend when it comes to interpretation. The, the other thing that I, I think is, is interesting about a good tarot reader and 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 a, and a not so good one um, we came to california and we were listening to a radio show and there was some psychic on there doing readings for people and, and i remember every reading was no or negative it was uh, you're going to lose your job you're going to your marriage is going to fail you're and, and people are calling in and it was constantly just negative and, and i thought you know, just the law of probability, one person has to be happy and successful of all these people that called in, just just odds alone that one of them has to do okay. And, and then I realized that whether they were doing it subconsciously or not, they realized that the uh, it, there was a safety in the negative in the sense that if I tell a person some, their business is going to fail, they end up succeeding, they're not going to be mad at me. If I tell them it's going to succeed and it fails, uh, they might be kind of pissed off. So so for me, I, I think that they were gravitating towards the safety of the negative. And, and to me, that you got to watch that, you know. And it's one thing to, to say, dis it's easier to discourage people than to encourage them, you know. If you're going to say, look, you sure, invest your money and your time in this business and it'll likely be successful and if it fails, they're going to be mad at me. But, but I think that you have to commit to the truth and I think every good reader is committed to the truth and I always tell people when I'm reading for them the first time is that um, I am going to be honest with you I'm not going to tell you something just to make you happy I'm going to tell you what I really think about any question that you ask or anything we look at 
Um, I said, now, again, while being truthful with you, there's no such thing as a bad reading, just bad readers. And, and every reading should either give you good news or good advice, but either way, it should be helpful and constructive. And then lastly, they have to show up and do the work. So if you have a wonderful energy for making friends, you sit home watching reruns by yourself on Netflix, it'll not do you a whole lot of good. And so we can just help you understand, you know, the way forward and give you some, some notion of how to get there. But the person still has to show up and do the work, you know, and if they don't, then that changes everything. But but, but I, I think that, again, you know, it's really a search for truth. And, and truth is not always negative, not always positive. You know, sometimes you'll win, sometimes you'll lose. But I, I think a good reader has to be comfortable with all of that. I agree with that. And, and that, that's a whole other sort of topic is what does it take to be a, a solid reader of any kind, whether it's astrology, numerology, uh, and there's other skills, just, you know, it's, it's similar to other, other professions, you know, it's sort of like a doctor has to have bedside manners to do well in certain ways. And in with the tarot, I like to call it the gift of gab. And it's, it's how you say things to people, not in order to get a certain reaction, like a, a like an overly conscious thing, but that you understand the words have impact and you choose your words wisely. Uh, there's We've talked about this in other shows as well, and Michael and I are really big on that. And there is, um, there's a little bit of an intuitive element to that because sometimes I'll, I'll sit down and look at the cards and certain words arise in my mind because of the combination of cards. And I immediately trust that those are the right words for the person. Uh, and so uh, giving a reading, obviously, whether you, you send it through email, you can also do written readings or speaking readings. So how you deliver the reading is honestly equally important. Yeah, and uh, Nisha, hi, Tanisha has joined in. And she says, commit to the truth, yes, but as it stands now. And I would tend to agree with that. And I always tell people that, you know, life is dynamic and readings are static. So, yes, it is a, a relative thing to the moment. Um, but I would also add to that, you know, that it will then look at it. And this is what you can expect if things continue to unfold in the manner that they're unfolding currently. And then it's presenting you with that choice, you know, do I want to continue to kind of go down this path the way I've been going? Or or maybe it's time now to reconsider and make some changes. And and I always think of that, I'm a big fan of the, the film, Scrooge, the Alistair Sin. Please don't watch any of one other than Alistair Sin. He's a genius. And that um, he basically, when he's dealing with the ghost of Christmas yet to be, he says, are these shadows of things that will exist or that will only exist if, if things don't change? Um, and to me, that's exactly what it is, is we're kind of giving you a glimpse of a, a future if things don't change. And, and then it presents you with the opportunity to make that conscious decision about whether that's the future you want to continue to let unfold or whether you're, you're ready to prepare to, to go in a different direction. I've seen people change their direction based on a reading and completely change their future. It, it doesn't end up anywhere near what it would have if they hadn't made a different conscious decision to kind of go down a different path. And so the reading is just giving you that opportunity to glimpse at, at what lays ahead in all probability and decide if that's the direction you want to continue to go. Yeah, it's very true that, that again, that's that idea of a probability. I will argue that what my experience seems to be based on, again, my own life and reading for others is life seems to be a combination of chaos, free will, and destiny. And destiny to me are themes that you're meant to play out through the most of your life, mostly because I think because it takes a while to really accomplish what that theme is. Um, I believe in chaos, like literal chaos, and 
only because I also believe in free will. So if you believe in free will of any kind, there has to be moments where we make a decision that was not the greatest. And you know how they say, you know, everything happens for a reason. Well, sometimes it's a bad reason. <laughs> so it's not always. So I, and that's my experience of life. It's this weird mix of, uh, and so, yes, we can change things and we can change our future, but I am not personally of the belief that we can do anything we want. Um, and I don't believe we can change absolutely everything because we are an integral part of life. And let's say my destiny is tied up with some other things that I have no control over. I do think we don't use as much of our free will as we possibly could in so many ways. And I also think you can kind of minimize things that could be part of your path that were difficult. So you make them less left, less di difficult through your conscious effort to improve yourself. Yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, relatively true as well, you know, and, and it, but again, how many times in life do we step back and really look at our lives and, and evaluate things and it's it's just a really great chance with a good reading and a good reader to step outside of the self for a moment step out of your life and and look at it from a different perspective and to me that's hugely beneficial and so as long as it's a, a good reader and not one of the silly negative gypsy people that is just trying to take advantage of you um but 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 again it's it's just this incredible opportunity to assess and and i think that that's a really great way of putting any reading is this incredible opportunity to assess things I think that's excellent. I like that too, because really, once you sit down and do a reading, you have already changed the future. Because like Michael said, you are taking the time to consciously look at your life or your loved one's life. And that already is a shift of consciousness. And um, anyone that does that on a regular basis, um, they will evolve more. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast. And so I love that idea of taking a breath and, you know, saying I'm going to assess my life. And I, what I like about the tarot is it's it's sort of a third party. And so, you, you know, if you're a good reader, which I think a good reader of cards realizes that um, they're sort of the translator of the information and really the, the star of the show are the cards. And so it, it, it takes away some of the projection people would put on you as a person. We're putting it into the cards now. Yeah, I, I think that a good reader, uh, to me, the, a bad reader is ego, and, and you don't want to develop ego. It's If you're not in awe of the, the responsibilities that go with being a reader, the uh, tremendous influence you can have for good or bad on someone's life and so forth, and it, it's an incredibly humbling thing. And I think if you've got a, a hyper-developed ego as a reader, you become very dangerous. I think it should be approached with a certain amount of, of humility, and I think I know Chris and I certainly see it that way. Um, and then because of that, again, it's not about you. It's about the person you're reading for. It's not about you proving anything to anyone, what a great reader you are, how talented you are, how wise you are, or anything else. It's about just trying to find the right words that will help that person in the moment. And, and to me, it's about them. It's never about you as a reader. I agree. And, and then also one of the things that has helped me throughout my career, one of the things I really love about the tarot is I feel that despite the fact that I have this, of course, intense relationship with the public, who without I would have no uh, income, I would not be able to study the tarot. But in a way, my primary relationship is with the tarot. And the more I really um, trust and have confidence in my tool, and the more I get to know it, and everyone gets to know their cards in different ways, just like a person, the more it, it it's like you're... Um, 
your dream world. The more you pay attention to your dreams, it gives you more information. It says, hey, Krista's actually writing down her dreams, so I'm going to give her more information. And it's the same with the tarot. If you see it as as a friend, as a teacher, as you, if you maintain, as, as we have maintained, probably because of our connection to Kabbalah, this sense of wonder and openness to the tarot, it really is absolutely a teacher. It, it, it really does take you where you will need to go as a reader, and that way you also will grow and be able to offer more to people. Yeah, so let's uh, switch topics up a little bit just quickly. And uh, just for fun, what is your favorite tarot card? Oh, my favorite tarot card. Well, I actually do have one, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to say it. And I, I think my favorite one right now is the Empress. And I, I love her imagery. I love what she represents. Um, I like the connection she has also to the tower, which is, is in some ways a card I also really like now because, again, I like the connection that, that we see through Kabbalah with the Empress and the Tower. Um, but there's something really um, beautiful and interesting about the Empress as she represents really any desire we have to do anything. She's the seed of that. And I've seen her sometimes evoked into my world very easily in a very real way. Now with me, I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball for a lot of people listening out there probably. But keep in mind, Chris and I study the tarot from a Kabbalistic point of view, which is a slightly different interpretation than I think a lot of the books have. But, but my favorite, um, honestly, Nine of Swords. And I know people are going to suddenly go, dear God, how could you possibly have that as your favorite? But if you understand it Kabbalistically, swords are basically the suit of actions. So what we say, what we do, our decisions and efforts and so forth that we make. Um, so it's a doing kind of a suit. Um, nines have the, the are in process of manifestation. So they're tangible, real, physical things. They're not just ideas and floating around in the ethers, but they're actually a very tangible thing. And then the nine rests on the center pillar, which means basically to serve God or to do what's necessary or best. So basically it means you're doing the right thing. It, it might be easy and happy and joyous. It might be painful or difficult, which is why in the Rider Waite, the, the face is covered by the hands to say the feelings, you know, we don't know what the feelings are and they shouldn't be you know, included in this, this interpretation. It's not about how you feel. It's simply about doing what's best. And to me, I always just love the idea that I'm doing what's necessary, that I'm doing the right thing. And so for me, getting the Nine of Swords in the reading means I'm doing what I need to be doing. And like it or not, you know, I'm still on the path. And to me, I love that card. I know that about you. And recently, I did a, a long article on the Nine of Swords just for that reason, which is published in the fourth volume of The Feminine Macabre. And what I did was also uh, delve into, that was the one where I read all the different interpretations through the years of the Nine of Swords. And in some of it was so over the top bad, I, I laughed actually, because again, we've been doing this for a long time. And in theory, theoretically, what we think about the Nine basically does hold true. And also the thing about the Nines, even if you don't use Kabbalah, they should all numerologically make some sense. They should have some correlation. And sometimes you won't see that with certain cards, like because it's a sword, it's super negative, And because it's nine of cups, it's super positive. But when you read in numerology books about nines, you see the complexity of it. And it is one of the most interesting mathematical numbers um, because of a variety of reasons. So it makes more sense to find some kind of coherent definition, whether it's through Kabbalah like we do, um, or even through numerology when it comes to any of the nines. 
Yeah, I, I went through this when I was first teaching tarot way back in the day. Um, we were at the Bodhi Tree in, in Melrose. Um, that used to be there, the famous bookstore that Chris and I did readings at for many, many, many years. Um, but, you know, I, I was trying to teach the cards in a slightly more neutral way, so I didn't want people to see this card is good, this card is bad. So I would try and take the cards that they naturally would like the images and say, okay, how can this be misapplied? How could it be a bad thing? Um, you know, and then the cards they didn't like and, and, you know, try and show them the light and say, okay, you know, how could this be applied in a positive way? You know, what could be the good that comes out of this? So I was trying to help them to kind of balance things a little bit more and not just see them as, as you know, black and white, good and bad. And then I got to the priestess, which occupies that center pillar. And this applies to all the cards that are connected with the center pillar on the Tree of Life in Kabbalah. Um, and try as I might, I, I couldn't find the negative. I couldn't really come up with a way of seeing this card in a negative light. Um, and I was kind of mad at myself, and I remember thinking, you know, dear God, are you so in love with this card that you can't vilify it? There has to be some negative. And then you, I heard a, some snippet of conversation between two people, and you get that experience where the penny drops, and then you understand things. And, and I said, I get it. I get why I can't find the shadow. It's because it doesn't have a light. If it doesn't have a light, it can't project a shadow. So, so basically, the center pillar is the pillar of neutrality. It's not good or bad. It just simply is you're doing what you need to be doing, whether that's positive or negative, whether you're happy or sad doesn't matter um so so it takes away all of those those biases and it's it's not a subjective pillar it's the pillar of objectivity so so because it doesn't have a light it doesn't project a shadow and that, that's why i couldn't find the shadow in the priestess i, I love that and, and another thing i wanted to add you're going to like this uh michael i was going through my old notes and again there's different ways you can approach the tarot and one is simply to look at the numerology but on a very deep level. So I said, well, let me look at the number 15 in the devil. And the devil, of course, gets a lot of negative press. And um, so in one of, it was, it was one, um, it was the 78.15.6 that I looked at in this book I like by Gene on numerology, but it really is fascinating what they write about it. Uh, that number is service, spiritual wisdom, wise beyond one's year, uh, intuitive, truth, order, economy, deep inner knowing, depth of emotion, thrives on monotony, very Capricorn, love of home and family, very true Kabbalistically, responsibility, knows all and understands all. Um, and what, what are the negative things? I There wasn't a lot, actually. Uh, let's see. Anyway, you get, you get the idea. And then Michael and I have often said that the, the devil card is connected to marriage. And it's, it's based on its position in the Kabbalah. And then because it's normally, well, popularly associated with Capricorn, a lot of this makes a lot of sense. You know, the intuitive side, Capricorns are quite intuitive, anyone that knows Capricorn as a sign. And that idea of wisdom, um, the reason I would see the devil having wisdom in a lot of ways is because it's a slow-moving energy and it, it will assimilate experience over many, many years. And so then hopefully it does have a chance to have wisdom. And there definitely are some negative connotations, but I was blown away by just simply looking at that. It made sense to me. I said, see, just even looking at the numerology 
alone with a, a good numerology book will give you a different insight on the cards. Yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but um, Crowley in, in one of his books again, I think it was the Book of Thoth maybe, but um, he said that if you studied nothing but the tarot, you'd be able to discuss you know, life with the greatest of philosophers. Um, it would so enrich your understanding and whatnot of life on such a deep and profound level that you could sit down with any professor of philosophy and, and he would take you as a colleague by having just studied the tarot. So, so, and I think it's true. I think it just gives you this incredible insight into life, you know, that you don't get in very many other ways. And to me, that's one of its great joys, you know, is what it can teach about the mechanics of life and the human experience. And to me, it's an endlessly fascinating study, which is why after 25 years, I'm still fascinated with the tarot. And, and the, the cool thing about it is just when you think there's not any possibility that I couldn't find something new in it, because I've been doing this for 25 years, and between Kristen and I, and we're not bragging, we've done probably, you know, over 40,000 readings for people. So you're thinking there's just no possibility every once in a while still someone something will happen in a reading where you'll see a card in a whole new light which you, it's still applicable but it's a whole new light that you haven't seen it before and i'm thinking what kind of a tool after 25 years of working with it as much as we has is still showing you its mysteries every now and again it's absolutely true and i i've come to the point where i really do see it as the map of uh, a map of the universe as both the unfortunate and alistair crowley talk about and that is one reason why I would never call myself a master of tarot. It means that I mastered the understanding of the universe. Would I call myself experienced? Yes, an experienced reader, absolutely. Uh, and that's just because I don't think you can master the tarot. <laughs> I, I think it's it's what, like Michael said, just when you think you you sort of, hey, I got it, you know, that's like, oh my God, this just blew me away, <laughs> you know? And that's not even looking at the different ways you can approach it through its connection to the Kabbalah. That's just looking at, you know, the individual cards and how they come across to you the more you use them. Yeah, um, but I would still encourage anyone who's serious about the tarot, please study a bit of Kabbalah or at the very least, you know, the Tree of Life is the most important thing. Arrange the cards in the way that they uh, correspond on the Tree of Life and sort of meditate on that symbol and try and understand it um, because I think it will change the way you see the tarot. And, and to me, the tarot is a pictorial representation of the Tree of Life. And, and so for me, if you understand the philosophy, the, the tarot is just kind of a little bit of a reminder of that lesson or, or just telling you which part of that to emphasize at any given point. But, but I think if you don't really have the philosophical background and understanding of Kabbalah, I do think that it opens the tarot to what I would see as, as subject to misinterpretation. And I was going to leave our, our listeners with uh, a little hint, and I'm not going to tell you what it means entirely, but just a hint. Um, another one that, that we found that we, we tend to believe isn't correctly interpreted as the death card. And I'll, I'll challenge each of you to take the word death out of the card, out of the vocabulary for a moment, and replace it with the word mortality and, and meditate on that. And I think you'll see that card in a whole different light if you understand that it's the card of mortality is what it's talking about. I agree. And that's a good little, I love that, that little Cohen, so to speak. Uh, I did want to go back just to the very beginning of the show. We mentioned a little bit about the lineage and history. And I found, um, I wanted to give a shout out to Tarot heritage website it's run by cheryl smith she has one of the most interesting timelines about the tarot and she has some really fun facts in it so i wanted to share a couple because they made me chuckle one is in 1543 the cards speak by pietro 
Aretino. They were published in Venice. It was a, a book. It's part of a pornographic book that gives information on the names and orders of the Trumps during the course of a dialogue. So I love that that little you know fact. And then another one that was really very creative and really funny is 1576 in France, poems in a series of stories called uh, Factitious Nights, and each stanza, a Trump figure who is playing a game of tarot loses the trick to a suit card that kills him. At the end, all the slain Trumps are resurrected by shuffling the deck. I just thought that was too much. And, and there's been a lot of creative ways through the history of the tarot that tarot has been used in literature and poetry and psychologically, you know, attributing a Trump card to a certain personality. So anyway, she does have a really great timeline. So just check it out if you are interested. There was another really cool way that I saw the tarot used at one point, and it was the Arthurian tarot by, I think, Caitlin Matthews. I'm sure Krista will correct me if I got that wrong. Um, and, and her deck is really neat. It was drawn as sort of a portal, uh, especially the, the, the minor cards, and each of them had a, a scene without people in it. Um, and one would be a winter scene where everything's frozen, one is sort of springtime, one is this, one is that, but they're all just different scenes. Um, and she would say that to use it creatively, um, what she would do is have you separate the major arcana, the court cards, and, and, the, and the minor cards. And, and she said, then you shuffle them up and you choose a, a, uh, a court card to be your traveling companion. So this is the person who will travel with you on the journey. You uh, choose a major card, which represents uh, the lesson that you encounter along the way. And you choose the minor card to represent the setting for your story. So you're basically using it as a storyboard. And, and then from there, you actually create a whole story um, based on those three cards, with one being the setting, one being the traveling companion, and one being the, the core theme or lesson of the journey. Journey. And I thought, what a great way to use the tarot. And her deck in particular, because of the way it was drawn as portals, you feel yourself almost drawn right into the cards. It became really, really, really easy to sort of fill yourself in that setting. You'd almost feel cold, you know, in the winter setting. So I think you could really get drawn into it. But I thought, what a fabulous fabulous way of using the tarot it's not predictive it's not about doing a reading as such but just using it strictly as a creative tool yeah i do that is a really beautiful deck and i i believe you're right it was caitlin matthews that did that deck and especially if you're interested in the whole arthurian lore and there's definitely different ways to use tarot that i think are completely legitimate um obviously mystery schools use it for enlightenment um, people use it for psychology sometimes now. And then, of course, it is a game that's still played. And as a game, as long as it has, I think, the 22 major arcana and the, the rest suit cards, you can use any kind of illustration, just like playing cards. You, you So in that way, any kind of art goes for the game of tarot, which, by the way, is kind of a fun game. I've played it a couple times. And, um, and it's still very much uh, a legitimate way to use and see the tarot. Yeah, I know we're running out of time, so um, I'm going to just uh, come back to maybe a quick closing thought, and then we'll let Krista close out the show. But um, the um, Crowley said that the two most profound tools for doing any kind of divination was the I Ching and the Tarot, and he thought they were both very special, and I, I agree with him. 
And I think that of all the tools, the thing that's cool about those is that they're both basically, again, a pictorial representation of an ancient philosophy. And that when you're studying the I Ching, you're studying Taoism. So you become very conversant in that philosophy. And when you're studying Tarot, you're studying Kabbalah. So, so you become very conversant in that philosophy. And it's having those deep, deep, deep philosophies behind the deck and behind the images or the, the hexagrams and the I Ching. Give, give it a depth that I think very few other tools have. I agree. And my piece of advice for anyone interested in just knowing the tarot is to pick one deck and one deck drawn uh, connected to somehow the lineage. And I would suggest working with that single deck with the imagery for at least three years, probably five, because you will really get to know that imagery. They're all, you know, they're all different. There's a big difference in the imagery of, of Waite and Crowley, and you'll just have a much richer experience, and it will really become part of you, the, the actual imagery, and, and you'll dream about it. Uh, so that would be my closing thought. So I, I thank you all for listening in today. It was really great. And thank you all for interacting with us. We hope you enjoy, enjoyed the show. Join us next time as we continue to um, explore the esoteric and the obscure together and have a magical week. <laughs>